0: What do you do when you know that you're wrong? What do you do when you you know that you're wrong? What What do you do when you you know know that you know? When you know that you're wrong? You got got to face face the music. music. You You got got to to listen listen to to the Cosmos song. song. You got to face the music. You got to listen to the Cosmos song. What do you do when you know that you know? That you know that you're wrong? What do you do when you know that you know? That That you you know know that you're wrong. wrong. You got got to to face the music. music. You got got to to listen to the cosmos song. You got to face the music. You got to listen to the cosmos song. What do you do when you know that you know that you know that you're wrong? What do you do when you know that you know that you know that you're wrong? You got to face the music. You got to listen to the cosmos song. You got to face the music. You got to listen to the Cosmo song. WCBN, FM and Arbor.
1: Lonely grief is hounding me Like a lonely shadow hounding me It's always there, just out of sight Like a frightening dream on a lightning night Lonely wind cries out my name Sad as haunted music in the rain It's born of grief and born of woe But I hear it call and I've got to go Where can I be headed for? The blues crawled in my door to lick my heart once more. Love lives in a lonely land where there's no helping hand to understand. Why does it bring this ache to me? Why? It don't matter why. I only know misery has to be part of me. Never hope to count on love to be a partner of that heaven up above. Never hope to understand Love is a barren land, a lonely land, a lonely land.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Toy Derricotte, today on Living
1: Writers. Toy, thank you so much for singing to start the program. That's a first. <laughs> thank you. That was Pretty scary and bold <laughs> to sing a Billie Holiday song. Yeah, because of the the um, the oh, range the, the and the range. Oh, but you just did it. I did it. Yes, it's it's out of the way.
2: <laughs> and what a wonderful! Thank you so much. What a wonderful idea. I can't think of a better way to have
1: started the well, program. I love Billie Holiday so much, and she was really my poet when I was fourteen years old. She was the first one that taught me that there is a language and somebody was speaking that language and I would be able to talk to somebody one day. I could hear that in her voice that there's something about what what was in her voice that I knew I had kin somewhere in this world. And I hadn't known it until I heard her sing. How did you first hear her sing then? You know, um, I think I was 14 and there was a... A guy, I always dated older guys, and I think there was this guy who must have been about 19, and this was in the times when um, there were such a thing as beatniks and intellectuals, and these guys wore sunglasses at night, and they wore uh, cashmere sweaters and suits, and they- Very nice. (laughs) Very, very (laughs) nicely dressed. (laughs) And they listened to the most fabulous music, jazz, and things that I didn't know about, you know, from my background. My Catholic school, Catholic school, classical music. I, I studied classical piano for many years, and um, and then of course the blues two on, on the radio stations I was listening to. At that time there were black radio stations and white radio stations. You, you were born in Hamtramck. I was born Detroit. there and I grew up in Detroit. And grew up in Detroit. Hamtramck is right in the middle of Detroit, a little, it was a Polish suburb at the time, but I was born at the Catholic hospital there. So, but anyway, so he was listening to Miles Davis and Billie Holiday and, uh, that's all I needed was just here. When I heard that Billie Holiday sing, I knew there was a heaven and I knew that I was going to get there one day. Yeah, I know. That guy was smart. He, he was
2: wooing he you. He was so Hardcore.
1: <laughs> he was so smart. He didn't know what he was opening up necessarily. No, he just knew what was beautiful and what was, what was artistically beautiful. He did have a sense of that. And at 14,
2: you're already writing poems in a journal that no one else was seeing. Right,
1: exactly. It was, uh, it was, uh, I knew that um, these were very uh, private kinds of writings, even though, you know, I wasn't necessarily writing about things that would be a secret, but there was something that was very close to my heart that I knew I had to hide for a while wasn't time to show it and was it right were you writing poems
2: toy or were you writing notes and chunks no of poems, i was or writing, was it
1: poems like is it the the forms it, and the i was lyrics. using for you know i had at that time uh i had studied edgar Allan poe and i had studied uh you know some of the uh, uh... oh, I really like you. Oh,
2: <laughs> why is
1: that? <laughs> I
2: don't know. You're just so great. You say you're gonna sing, and you mention Edgar Allan Poe, like seemingly out of the blue, like really.
1: <laughs> but you know that's what we were reading in eighth grade. Oh, like the Raven, maybe. Yeah. Well, or... the... and Annabel Lee. I think that was oh. the one that was very mysterious to me. And uh, and I I was in a contest uh, in Catholic school we where we reso- recited poems and I read a very long poem about the Crusades I remember <laughs> <laughs> why would you choose that one Well I didn't choose it the nun <laughs> the nun chose it and uh, now when I think about me reading about uh, some of the terrible things that went on in the <laughs> Crusades and it was like I was for the Crusades at the time <laughs> I mean I didn't know what I was talking about but anyway I knew I had some sense of form and so I was using what I knew a form to write my own poems at the time Yeah, you know. and and you risked showing it to your
2: cousin at a certain point in Chicago right? is that yeah, the other story? yeah, you know, yeah, like
1: I-, yeah I did and You know, it was all secret. And, you know, he didn't know anything about poetry. You know, he was was, a med student. He was a med student with embryos. And and, and by the way, a fabulous man and a fabulous uh, supporter of my poetry years later, he gave me a party you know, when my first book came <laughs> well, out. Well, he
2: had something to make up for, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he,
1: well, he didn't know, but but at the time, yeah, he told me, and, you know, probably these poems were, I don't know what I was ra- writing about. Probably I was writing about death because well, my grandparents had a funeral home. And so I was exposed to, you know, death a lot in, during my childhood. I'd be over there all the time. I'd be answering the phones and showing people into the Undertaking parlors when I was seven years old, eight years old, and with uh, the body with a body that's what I mean I was uh, you know in those days it, kids had jobs uh you know from the time I was four or five years old, I used to go to the mail room and help my aunt you know doing opening envelopes, and when I was at the undertaking parlor, the funeral home, I would answer the phone and you were supposed to work right right. <laughs> <laughs> kids today don't know. Yeah. You know, you don't have TV, you, you know, you'd, uh, so yeah. So my cousin, I, I showed him some poems and he thought these are kind of morbid and they probably were, but it, 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 uh, but they weren't morbid to me at the time. They were just expressions of deep things that were troubling to me. And I guess that's where a lot of my writing uh, came from things that troubled me. Little things, you know, maybe something that I saw on a bus. Like one time I saw uh, people on a bus, uh, some s- s- people who looked lonely on a bus. And I oh. thought, you know, they're in the middle of a crowd, and but they look lonely. And it, in fact, it looked like they were with other people, with maybe like a family, and still there was that expression of loneliness. And at the time I was at uh, Mary Grove College, which is in a college in Detroit, a Catholic college, and I remember the nun uh, who hadn't given me great grades, you know, maybe Cs during the semester, and then she picked this poem out and to talk about it and to have me read it in front of the class. So she was supporting my poetry. And had she known that you wrote poems? No, no, you? no, no, no. I just sort of turned it in by mistake or accident or something. But years later, when I was uh, an established poet, I went back and and took her to see uh, uh, a play in Ann Arbor. I took her to see uh, Dame Judith Anderson in The Frogs. And uh, she really appreciated that. From, from all...
2: Because you you had had a scholarship to go to this school and weren't you thinking of being
1: right toy and you were going to be a nun? Oh, I was accepted into, I was accepted into, into the nunnery, uh, into or so. the in, immaculate heart of Mary nuns. Yeah, I was accepted. And, and I guess I was, must've been about, uh, 19 then. And, uh, I was very attracted to, uh, to the spiritual life and also to, uh, to something about uh solitude maybe and uh oh i think i was attracted to uh doing something for other people and uh and you know and i knew that they they worked for other people and i was i was attracted to that too uh and from being in catholic school all those years that yeah. would have been one of the natural 13 years paths and maybe i was to looking you. for a family too. And I knew that all the nuns lived together in a house and it was a kind of family to me. Uh, so I think I was thinking about all of those things, sisters. I was an only child and, uh, I was thinking about, uh, what it was like to be a sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you have a poem, um, I think in Cap,
2: to, or a poem where you say, write, uh, Sil- Sister Sylvia um, had told you to write a letter to your father to let go of anger. And I actually thought you had meant um, Sylvia Plath, because that was it a, wa- oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh oh
1: Well, no, no, oh. no, no, no. no. It, it, Sylvia Plath did. Because uh, you read Daddy. Right? right. But it was another Sister Sylvia. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good thing you noticed. Is,
2: isn't that an interesting, it, yes, strange it
1: echo that... It, is a very good echo. Very nice, nice. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> Anytime.
2: <laughs> and I love that poem because there's so much. Um, what you do is you you show this struggle and also this this uh, because you're. I don't know if you want to read that one toy, but um there, then and in the end you're doing a dance that's like a Sufi dance and there's hail <laughs> and you're saying and then the light sh- there's so much happens in this letter poem. It's really it could be to Sil- like Sylvia, but it's I a never, sister.
1: I never thought about that. But I do I will say that um uh when when I did um read daddy for the first time and that was in that the was early 70s. Se- that was in it? New York? It was in the early 70s. It was the first time I took a writing workshop and the first time I really showed my writing in a serious way. And this and was when you were getting your master's? No, 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 I, no. I was just taking a poetry workshop and I had just moved to New York and um, uh, and I read that. Uh, the, the teacher, Pearl London, read that poem to us and it just blew my mind she had she was only dead you know maybe eight or nine years at that point, so it wasn't like she was a famous writer she wasn't mythic at that no, point no she the, wasn't in yes. any of the anthologies or anything like that, and there was still a question in people's mind was this real poetry you know i mean uh, the, she wasn't being taught in any of the classes i mean that was <gasps> Yeah. We, in a graduate school, you know, no, not at all. You you mentioned that it was sort of this canon of, um, it sounded
2: like the list was like mostly white male deceased. It was, deceased. All,
1: yeah, it was yeah. all white male deceased. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, poets at that time, when they'd come and do a poetry reading, they would sometimes be introduced as a living poet. And this was, you know, amazing <laughs> to people that there were poets that were really alive and you, and you and you're saying you know in a way in another way uh that in your show that yes we are very much alive and um but at that time you know traditional meant dead and it, it meant studying people who had been dead that's the the people you look to to teach you how to be a poet so when i was reading uh sylvia plath and i th- thought to myself there's something that you can do. You can take these things inside you that are so conflicted, that are um, so invisible, so, um, so unsaid and unheard and unspeakable because I couldn't, who would I say these things to? And you can take all of that, which felt like chaos inside of me. It felt close to something that might make me go crazy, you know, And whatever that was going crazy, I thought it was maybe it was, you know, to have all of these things inside you that you don't know what to do with. But here was this way of taking that and giving it a voice that poetry was a way of creating beauty from disorder. And I got that and it changed my life. We're going to take a
2: short break and then we'll come back. Um, we'll talk more with Toy Derricott, who is here. We're taping this program the 8th of November, 2012, Living Writers. We've got Gus as engineer. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. back you've got living writers i'm t hutzel today i'm so happy to have in the studio here toy Derricott. um toy started off the program with um singing a beautiful billy holiday song
1: deep song deep song mm-hmm. and that was one of the ones that billy holiday said was her favorite song i didn't know that until ver- in years later and it's a hard one to find
2: too. it's very hard to find and I know Gus is trying to find another one that's hard to find. We'll see,
1: Toy, yeah. if he finds. Both <laughs> of those are were her favorite songs.
2: And so funny that they were yours too.
1: It yeah, makes it seem I like you're connected I, through I, time and space. I felt that way. I really felt that way when I found when I read that those were her two favorite songs.
2: And and she was the the person that also gave like gave voice. You yes. said at the beginning of the program yes. like a, a possible voice that yes. you recognized. Yes.
1: Yes. To experience. Yes. Yes. And uh, I I play her now at night. You know I have Pandora, and uh, I play the Billy Holiday station. i oh, will have to check that. out. <laughs> and you know I still feel that about her after all these years. I still feel connected to her. You know. So and, there's a, a real sister too, because sometimes that can
2: be more authentic, right? Like a who you feel is your family.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I, we, and I also feel, you know, because she was hard on people. She, she was not a nice lady. <laughs> and in fact, you know, um uh, I hope she forgives me for saying this, but she uh you know, when she's singing, you hear qualities in her voice that you do not hear if you just get a, catch catch a picture, catch a, a piece of her ta- just talking to another person. Right. She is, it's not the same voice. It's not the same language. Well, she suffered. She was suffering, right? She was a soul that was
2: tormented. That's right. But maybe when she was singing, that was the...
1: Yes. Some parts yes. that were... Yeah. There and, and in fact, um, uh, someone said about her that the only time she was happy was when... No, no, I'm sorry. That was Ella Fitzgerald. No, that was Ella Fitzgerald, where they said the only time she was happy was when she was singing. But, you know, certainly when Billie Holiday starts singing uh there's you know these things that are inexpressible that uh are communicated between the notes uh, and that you cannot hear when she's speaking you just hear the words and the tone and that's it but when she starts singing she gets she's able to express something that's with nuances that are probably you know we can't we can't even talk about what that is and that's what I love so much. Is that what you also feel, maybe, about the experience of making po- a poem? Well, that's what I would like to do. Um, I would like very much to find language that communicates um, uh, something that we feel in the body as truth, you know, something that we recognize in a primal way. Uh, because I think those. Uh, Um, that there's something that, that, uh, is, is very early, uh, that gives us a sense of what's true. It's, it's almost like, um, when I'm writing, there's something that I'm looking for that gives me a feeling of balance, uh, in, in a, in a word and and, a phrase. Um, and it's some kind of innate sense of when you're balanced, you know when you feel like you're falling over or, or something from from babyhood from the moment you're born and there's something like that to me when you find the right word so it's conveying so much about where you are in space you know like everything in you your body your nerves your everything is sort of telling you it looks like you're doing one thing but a million things are functioning at that moment. So I think that, that great writing has that you're, you're doing one thing, but in order to do that one thing, you know, hundreds of other things are going on that you're not aware of. Yes.
2: Yes. And these layer, these layers of it there that you, when you're maybe, there's always, there's going to be, there's so much to talk about with you that sometimes I'm going to not know where to go with it (laughs) because there's so many things to say. Um, one of them is something that you you wrote in the 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 new introduction to your book natural birth toy where you s- this which is truly connected to this idea of i think of this experience because you wrote this this um this book this this long poem um years after yeah. the
1: birth of your son that's right 17 years after
2: But it's, it's an immediacy that's there, like you're talking about that you were able to access this, this, um, memory so that it was something that was you again, when he went on this outward bound trip, like some, he was gone and you access this memory and, and you talk about it, um, in this incredible way where like there are these moments in your life. Like what I learned is that a poem is a living thing. And like any living thing, we have to accept what we are given, uh, I understood the power of a poem that the poet constructs a container for words and sounds that then takes on its own life, having an energy completely independent of her
1: yes, that yeah, exactly, um, and I was also thinking about I wonder if what makes a poet a poet um is that you're born with something like another organ, and it's inside that organ is where some kind of perception of things is kept. And then when it's time for these things to come forth, you know, um, they come forth and you, uh, you have to, you know, you have to find all the ways to express them, put them in language, put them into... You know whatever form they that they, they can hold. the The reason why I'm saying that is because I remember when I was teaching uh, children, and in New Jersey, no, in, in, in New Jersey, in New was Jersey Jersey it in the, for 15 years? Because you're a writer in the schools. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I'd go in and I'd you know get and if you really motivate the kids, they go to these places inside their bodies where they just pull out these complete poems and they have a shape. And they have uh, you know this- this gorgeous depth and clarity. I was just telling my graduate school students yesterday this poem that a second grader wrote. it was um i see oh, no, I see red, I hear the moon, God is mad." Yeah, <laughs> it's like a second grader. Okay, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? And I, I just had that sense that you know, some, t- some for some reason, you something gets tapped, and it comes to the mm. surface, and it's like it's in the body somewhere, in this mm. little crystal, and it comes forth, and it catches
2: language and experience somehow.
1: Yeah, 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 and so. You know that happened with natural birth. I mean, I had that ex- experience had happened to me seventeen years before, and I had never talked about it with anybody. My son was born in a home for unwed mothers because I wasn't married at the time, and um, and you know, and people don't know what that is now. But this was at a time when women there were no abortions. Because this did, was early sixties. Yeah, right? yeah, and so a lot of times young girls went away. To a home and, uh, you know, they were say they were the 11th or 12th grade and they had a baby and um, maybe people knew or didn't know where they had gone. It was all secret, but people suspected somebody would disappear for three months or four months and they'd come back and, um, you know, they would go back to being a cheerleader. But, but, but you brought your son back with I you. I did. I decided while I was away that I wanted to, you know, not, not do that. But I didn't talk about it because I didn't want my son to know. And so I didn't really talk about it until my son was uh, 17. And then I told him about what had happened. And I wrote the book. But I remembered everything exactly because it, it was held in that space of silence and I just remembered every detail. You know how sometimes they say, oh, you have a baby, you forget it? Right, because it's part of the natural so. process, so you'll do it again,
2: right? Isn't that how it goes? Yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't forget.
3: <laughs> I didn't forget.
2: Is there any part of that poem, Toy, that, that you feel like you want to jump, well, jump I, to at all? Do or this. T-
1: this is a, a, little, a little one at the end. Well, people seem to like this one, um, which is about... After the baby was born, um, you know, then your family can come and because uh, you're alone there uh, during this whole process. And so this is when the father came and visited me, The Visiting Hour. He came in his seedy brown jacket, smelling of paint, all thumbs, a man stumbling over his own muscles, unable to hold some part of himself and rock it gently. She gave up seeing him come in the door, wanting to show him her belly just an hour before, looking at her own corpse in the mirror. She lay there, reduced, neither virgin nor mother. It had been decided the winter was too cold in the garage. They would live with her mother. The old bedroom was already prepared, cleaned, the door opened, The solitary twin bed remained. He would sleep on the porch. She looked at him and tried to feel her way into the body of a woman, a thing which was to be taken care of, held safely in his arms. She lay there, trying to hold on to what she had, knowing she had to let it go. Thank you, Toy. Mm. You're welcome.
2: And that's from Natural Birth, right? The book, um, Firebrand Books, and we also have on the table um, the
1: the most recent book, The Undertaker's Daughter, right? As well, Um, and which the last line of that book is "Let it go," and I hadn't I hadn't realized that. Did you realize that? Yes, (laughs) yes. Look at it. (laughs) I know. I hadn't realized it until I just read that poem. (laughs) I actually hadn't. (laughs) But you know, but when you said it. Yeah, it resonated. Yes. And I mean, I think that's very true. Uh, I think for me, the book is about doing something that then you let go. It's about doing something that you have to do, but then after it's done, you let it go. Pain, love, anger. The process is over. Whatever it took to create that book is over. Yeah. Yeah. let's take a short break
2: and then we'll come back and I'll, I'll do, we're doing this sort of unconventionally. So then I'll read your short bio on the back of the undertaker's daughter, um, out, um, just last year with the university of Pittsburgh press. Um, you've got living writers today on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor living writers. We'll be right back.
1: Thank you.
3: When I look at you Cause you're my thrill You're my thrill How my pulse increases I just go to pieces When I look at you you're my friend mountain higher when I look at you I can't keep still you're my
2: thrill welcome back that's a great song um if you're just joining us Toy Derricott and I are glad that you did and that you heard a bit of Billy Holiday there. Toy, will you Yeah, it's that
1: song means so much to you. Oh, it does. It's so beautiful. The uh the orchestra is beautiful. The is beautiful behind it. The instrumentation is gorgeous. Uh and I wonder why that, you know, many, many people, is that, that's not their favorite song by Billie Holiday. Yeah, well, you're my thrill. It's so full of, um, like, joy and longing. <laughs> yeah, joy and longing. And, uh, and just to be told that, which a beautiful thing, I was thinking, you know, what if she were telling me that? Yes, to, to mean that, yes. It's beautiful. You know what a validation, you know, from uh, from a person who certainly has been more than my thrill. I mean, from the time I was fourteen, you know, she was she was sort of the reason why I could keep on living, because uh, you know there was a lot of silence, a lot of abuse, and uh, there wasn't many, there weren't many people to talk to. But uh, slowly. I found a poetry community, and that was so important to find uh, other people who were interested in making something beautiful out of uh, hard things to talk about and things people didn't necessarily want to talk about. Uh, And uh, over a long period of time, uh, seeing that that was meaningful to other people, that that you could make a community. Where people could um, uh, not only give um, have solace and and a f- sense of safety and reality, but could create great art. You know what a, what a wonderful thing, you know. And that happened. In, I'm the co-founder of an organization called Cave Canem, uh which you know comes from that sense that uh, there was a time when uh, African American poets were not read not in grade school i didn't read an african-american poet in grade school high school college in graduate school uh, that seems unthinkable and
2: it wasn't that long ago and and there's a, a an article where i think you're talking about post, we're not post-racial and uh, you know like that that's oh. that some of the um like some of the things that people had said to you i was shocked
1: Oh, yes, yes. Not But a that professor
2: even would say to you, you, that yeah,
1: we don't when I said, why haven't we read an African American poets in the eighties, and he said you know we don't we don't we don't go down that low, well, you know, I wonder but what would that what did what
2: and it was a he it was a he yes yeah, well, what did he even, ha, ha, what was he even saying, and did he know what was coming out of his mouth like when I saw that printed on the page, i just thought what
1: well i i i i think uh you do if If you don't have to think about what, you know, um, when you're so accustomed to thinking in a certain way and, um, and there's no question you fit into that way you've been taught, you know, you don't have to think about it. It's just real, you know. So he had been taught the master's, study the master's. And that meant study Keats and and you know and Wordsworth and yeah. be on a hill with yeah. a particular type of flower yeah and learn, <laughs> yeah, and, learn and, and and those were that was the way we were supposed to be poets, but for me, um, you know, and I, I read a poem this morning uh, in in my craft talk called by uh, Lucille Clifton called Study the Masters, in which she talks about how her aunt Timmy you know irons the sheets that the master poet slept on but then she's when she's asleep you know he has certain dreams and she has certain dreams and at the end she says you know uh, if you study her dreams you'll know uh, you'll know the meaning of the word discipline and order and form and america you know, so the point and America. and America, so the point is that depending on the masters mm. <laughs> and the meaning of the word, of course, if you, if you are the oh. descendant of a slave, oh, right, uh. <laughs> the word master <laughs> means something entirely different when you say study the masters. Yes. So. So that's where I'm coming from. What he said, the world that he took for granted, the meaning he took for granted, the aesthetics that he took for granted was something that was an unspoken uh, conflict within me, something that bothered me. And yet, on the one hand, I had to prove myself worthy to be a part of this tradition knowing by what he said already that i was not worthy <laughs> so there was this con- this conflict this tension in me about uh being whether i was able to maybe maybe a black poet maybe there's maybe we really couldn't write poetry maybe there was something intrinsically wrong but but then but then you also had that that lived experience
2: with that moment with Sylvia Plath, with recognizing something about maybe a woman who wasn't supposed to be saying the things that she's saying, and knowing within yourself that this is a poem. Because you were saying, even at eight years after her death, they were saying, "Well, maybe this isn't, oh, many, you know, really yeah. a poem, or it's not lasting." Well, even or,
1: now, you know, there's a question about whether writing about your personal. Uh, life, whether that you can really create real poetry out of that, you know, or maybe you're just copying it out of your journal or something. No, but like you said, it's something different. It's like, like what you were saying in
2: this, this forward to in natural birth with this, where you had this realization that it, it was a a thing unto itself, this poem, because when you were trying
1: to change a revise um, the natural birth poem yes and make it into something yes and this is and this is the point this is the point I think that underneath for me there is this rage to do what I've been told I can't do or I shouldn't do you shouldn't say that you shouldn't that's you're not going to be able to make that Poetry. That's not real poetry. Uh, <laughs> Watch and, me. Yeah, exactly. So there's some rage there that has to do with that old idea that Stanley Kunitz talks about that is that the that the poet poet represents something in the society that has that that is that is not supposed to be Uh, is spoken or, or realized. It's something that is, uh, it's sort of opposed to what is this, the spoken, the, the finished, the done, the tradition, the poet speaks out more that takes that and, and sort of moves through it to speak something new and that's that's uh what's sort of uh, risky and even rebellious i think in the act of writing the poem
2: and it goes back to what you
1: said when you're making
2: one a sense of what's true
1: yes that's what yes yes and i and i and i the more i think about um uh truth uh, that uh, what i want to say about that is that Truth is not only a decision about content, but it's also a decision about form, because any time a writer sets a kind of limit for themselves, that sets a uh, uh, something that you're going to knock your head up against over and over again, you've set a formal, you've made a formal decision, because that is going to entirely with every word you write you are moved toward a certain kind of language and Mm -hmm. syntax and you're moving away from another kind of language and syntax so so in the end the artist's job is to embody you know whatever decision you've made about what you're going to, uh, to to write, and this has to come, I think, uh, eventually it, it, you have to find that deep place that demands being expressed. That's your theme or your subject. You have to embody it with language. And for me, choosing truth, and of course there's no truth out there in the sky. This is truth that it feels right to you. Uh you know and in the end i think you are making a decision that is a formal as well as a content related uh choice even when you're in the when you're
2: making the earliest stage are you saying toy?
1: i'm saying that it moves you in that direction i know when i first started writing the black notebooks uh you know which took uh, 25 years to write you know it started as um you know i bought a uh, we bought a house in an all white neighborhood We were the first black people upper in Montclair. upper montclair new jersey and um and I got the house by doing something I felt an inner shame about I mean people thought I was white. I never told them I was white, but they thought I was white, and that's the way I got the house because when my husband went with me, we were shown an entirely different neighborhood. Uh, but when I got in the house, I, I was this rage, again, that underneath, I'm going to get it. I'm going to do what they don't want me to do. I'm going to do it. So we we got a house, and uh, three months later, I was in this terrible depression. So the book, the process was what part of myself did I so hate that I wanted to kill it? And... uh just at first it was little chicken scratches i didn't even i had no idea what i was writing about or what i was looking for um but the long process of of putting this book in what looks like prose it was it was lined like iambic uh, pentameter for many years but the book has to find it has to satisfy Uh, The form is made to satisfy the deepest purpose. What is the purpose of this book? The purpose of the book is to provide a momentary community in which you can talk about something that's forbidden and can open up this area where people are either afraid or ashamed or afraid they are going to be shamed or they're going to say the wrong thing. This book is to make an intimate space to talk about things that are too hard to talk about, uh, race. And how could I do that? Was I going to create a form that looked like a poem, a work of art? It, this was— So why? It's called A Notebook. And, you know, a lot of people that don't know a lot about how hard it is to write a book like this, you know, will say, oh, it's so great to read your journals, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but it, Did I mention the 25 <laughs> years? <laughs> <where>? <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, you, you're, you're, whatever your form is in the end, it's not to show off. The form is to enable your work to do the work that it wants to do. And you don't know that for a long time what that work is it keeps getting deeper you keep understanding it on a deeper level
2: i had no idea that this would have been i mean now it makes me want to look at the lines and see how they were iambic pentameter you know this this idea but it does cuz the the interiority it seems like the it needs to also feel plain
1: spoken and not yes. something
2: that's coming to you in this other vehicle
1: exactly, exactly, and the, one of the things that was the most horrible moments of my life was when I got the galleys back from the, Norton, and I saw that a line is a different line when it's done in the galley at the the printer's than when than the lines I had sent in when I gave them my manuscript.
2: So even though it was prose the lines had still shifted and that of was course. wrong. And oh, I
1: no. I hadn't realized that was going to happen. Yes. So in a way this book is not really the book I want a writer uh, a reader to read. That's in my manuscript in my in my papers is the true black notebooks.
2: <laughs> Did you hear that Norton? Anyone at Norton, you got to reissue the you book
1: know, very I, soon. You know, I really should I really should pull it out now because because I'll tell you, for me, a line is the final arbiter of the work of art because the line is really what is the the way you want the reader, <coughs> the timing, <coughs> excuse me, the way you want the reader's mind to go down the page. And my manuscript did that. Let's take a short break and we'll come right back
2: um, <coughs> Toy Toy Derricotte is here on the program. Uh, We've been talking about The Black Notebooks, An Interior Journey, um, The Undertaker's Daughter, uh, the latest collection of poems out with the University of Pittsburgh Press. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel today on the program. Toy Derricott is here. Um, and I've yet to read the bio because this has just been, uh, this has been an, a, a conversation that I didn't want to interrupt.
1: No, we were having such a good time. <laughs> know, we were. Don't wait. Don't use the past oh, tense oh, yet. i <laughs> It's still good.
2: <laughs> so here it is. And this, um, the undertaker's daughter, uh, Just out last year, the latest collection of poems also on the table, um, Captivity, Tender, Natural Birth, The Black Notebooks. Toy Derricotte is the author of four previous poetry collections, The Empress of the Death House, Natural Birth, Captivity, and Tender, winner of the Patterson Poetry Prize. She is also the author of The Black Notebooks, recipient of the 1998 Annisfield-Wolf Book Award. She is the recipient of two Pushcart Prizes and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, among other honors. Derricotte is co-founder of Cave Canem and professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh. And the latest news, Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Can you say a little bit about that, toy? Like what? What's your role as Chancellor now?
1: Well, I'm a new baby chancellor. I don't know a lot about my role, but we're doing interesting things. I was at one meeting and um uh it's it's uh it's it's great. Um because uh Do you wear a robe? Oh <laughs> doesn't it sound? Like- <laughs> no. But when you said that I thought of a bathrobe maybe <laughs> But it does sound like that. And you know, when I was uh When I was a baby poet years ago, you know, I never imagined uh, that this could happen because at that time, of course, it was 12 white men who were chancellors for their whole lives, and that's the way it was. Things are, American poetry is changing, and it's wonderful to see that uh, there are. There is the the experiences that really exist here in our country are finding a way into our literature. Uh, Toni Morrison said, you know, she writes the books that need to be written and there are still so many books that need to be written to make this a real, the real American story. And it's happening now. I'm so proud of that. And I feel blessed to be alive, uh, to see this happen.
2: And it's so brave to write those first poems, stories, yes. what needs to be in the world. Cause sometimes you think, Oh, I didn't, it, it's an absence. You, you feel, but sometimes you've not even ever articulated it.
1: Right. Until exactly. you somehow created it. Exactly. And, uh, I just, myself, I want to encourage people to to write these things that they don't see written, you know. Uh, that's not the only reason to write. But there are many reasons, but, you know, when you feel that you, want, you need to express something because you need to make this visible in the world, you need people to see this who don't see it, you know, it does take a risk and it does... Uh, need a uh, bravery and you do have to try to make friends. People find on the world those places that you feel mirror back to you an authentic self and not a broken self because you know that's the mirror that I received when that professor said we don't go down that low. You know then I saw well something's wrong with me. But So you have to find those mirrors that give you the true reflection of your own power and beauty and you know, and, and, and keep following that to write your work. And then you're the mir- mirror for others. That's right. When they see that you are able to do this, that you are the mirror for others. And that's a very, that's an empowering situation. I know uh, for the first uh, Kavi when, you know, so many African-American poets, uh, you know, 20 people sat in a circle. So many of us who had never, studied with another African American poet never even maybe even read an African American poet and here we were sitting in a circle 20 people who were poets you know what what an empowering reflection of of the ability to do what we needed to do to write our work and that has happened
2: it must feel like this ratcheting open In a sense of something, like maybe of that organ, like where you said these things are inside us, like then there's like, you know, it,
1: it seemed to happen so painlessly. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that, you know, because it just seemed like people were so happy you know that they immediately went to work i mean uh people <laughs> not always usual with poets yeah, yeah no and they did it you know they didn't go into their rooms like to suffer in silence everybody went into the lounge and you know wrote poems all day some people didn't sleep for 7 days and you know and they'd write <laughs> in there and then maybe they'd go over and say okay you know i can't find the right word sh- you know and can you help me with a word here and and uh so it was huh. And immediately there was a list served and, you know, in 25 postings a day. And now it's 16 years old and uh, our fellows have won all kinds of prizes. And, you know, we've had uh, faculty win uh, National Book Award and uh, Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, it's hard to imagine it not being there 16 years ago. Yes, this didn't exist so it's it, just in 16 years and as i say it wasn't ratcheted open it was almost like uh you know kavi kanem uh was uh was already there and somebody just find found the hole where the door was supposed to be and, they, and opened the door yes. you know because it, the power was already it was just ready to happen and so we we were fortunate enough to be there for that beginning and it was you, Cornelius Edie, and Sarah, his Sarah wife. Micklem, his, his wife. wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That first year, uh, we uh, we were vacationing together on, in uh, Capri, and uh, and I asked, you know, did they want to do this workshop? And and uh, they said yes, and they're they we all went from there.
2: That's great. It was that a was great just, that thing. Was so go on vacation that's like, uh, yeah that's a good, with with people you love <laughs> yes yeah mm-hmm. and um speaking of people you love I wonder like grace Paley when she there's i wanted to ask you about her because you' have this wonderful poem um about when she's late for her reading yeah in grace
1: Paley reading I think that's is in, it? here maybe
2: in tender mm-hmm. we haven't I, yeah toy you haven't we haven't heard anything from the Undertaker's daughter oh, either. Well, what would you what? like to me to read? Oh, any anything. Well, I mean, if I was, I guess, I was talking about the Grace Paley poem, <laughs> but now we're both just like fanning through pages <laughs> of all these wonderful books here. Um, <gasps> the night I stopped singing like Billie Holiday. That oh, I have Grace Paley reading.
1: That is beautiful uh you'd have to know who grace paley is this great fiction writer and poet who um who and talk about a crusader for good oh yes but for good <laughs> oh yes and in always always out there at every rally at every uh for women's rights for the poor speaking out she saw her writing her artistic work as very connected to social justice. And I learned so much from her and always chewing gum and always in sneakers. And she was not a tall woman. And she just had this way about her that was just lovable. You just loved her. And she was just herself all the time. And this powerful poet and fiction writer, Grace Paley reading. Finally, the audience gets restless and they send me to hunt for Grace. I find her backing out of the bathroom, bending over, wiping up her footprints as she goes with a little sheet of toilet paper, explaining, in some places after the lady mops, the bosses come to check on her. I just don't want them to think she didn't do her job. So she was late to her reading because she was making sure that the lady wasn't going to get in trouble because she, she, she left footprints, and so you see what she what was on her mind. The really important thing that was on her mind was not that getting to that poetry reading. It was being very careful about taking care of people in the moment and doing what was right in the moment. Now you could I could learn a lot from from that, and I did. Me too. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so much is happening as you show that, like
2: in the poem, Toy, with the re- her re Yeah. Because she's also, you're showing that she is, it isn't about like this, because she's a great poet. She's a great poet. And fiction writer. And sh- she was... Um, actually just the layer like wait yes it's just beautiful the like the layers that are uh, visible you make visible by capturing that moment of her life right. um instead of t- talking about her you show it in this moment right of everything. and it's like uh
1: it's, like it's like the lucille clifton study the masters you know just remember what we're really about here you know and what our work is really about you know um and you know, and i and i believe that great poets are working to change things <laughs> and so um so we have a purpose in mind that's it's that's uh you know people are dying for what what they're writing and i think maybe we need to remember in our safe little uh academic situations positions that uh, you know that that we are after creating great art, which has something to do with change, seeing things in a new way. Thank you so much, Toy. Thank you. I was loving being here. Thank oh, you. I was. Thanks for starting
2: us off with the song.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
2: And yeah, and ending with change. Like yeah. It isn't. It well, that's isn't. the
1: end of the the Undertaker's daughter is change. Yes, yes
2: it is. Do you want to, sure. g- shall we go out on this? Yeah, yeah. this? You've been listening to Living
1: Writers with Toy Derricott. The poem is change, the poem in change, the end of the poem is change, to change in the poem, to change by the poem, to hold the change in the poem, to be changed by the poem, the poem is change. To change by writing the poem. The writing is change. To hold the change in the writing. To hold the change by writing. To breathe through the change. To write through the change. To breathe by writing. To write by breathing. The change is breathing. The change to hold the breath. To hold the writing. To hold the change, to hold it. And let it go. Thank you.
3: Some other spring I've tried to love Now I still cling to faded blossoms Fresh when worn, left crushed and torn Like the love of fair I Some other spring When twilight falls Will the night spring Another to me Not your kind But let me find It's not true that love is blind Shines around me, but deep in my heart, it's cold as ice. Love, once you find.